Welcome back to Inspired. I'm Amber Kahn. The religious landscape in the United States is far more diverse, multi-faith, and unaffiliated than it has ever been. Yet, that religious diversity has hardly touched the presidency. Every American president has been Christian, but only one American president so far has been Catholic. So that's one thing to note about the diversity of religious belief, that still the vast, overwhelming majority of presidents have been some kind of a Protestant Christian. And within that category, there's great diversity. That is Heather Curtis. And I'm the chair and associate professor in the Department of Religion at Tufts University. She joined us to talk about the faith of U.S. presidents from the mid-19th through the early 20th century. During this period, the United States endured many conflicts, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, and World War I. How did America's dominant culture at the time view country and faith? Many Protestants within the United States actively constructed the idea that the United States was a Christian nation, and by that they meant explicitly an Anglo-Protestant nation as well. This idea that America is a Christian nation would persist, and political leaders would continue to invoke the divine, particularly in times of crisis. That brings us to perhaps the nation's greatest crisis, the Civil War, and the president who brought the country through it. Abraham Lincoln, though, approached his religious life rather differently than his predecessors. So Lincoln is raised in a very traditional Christian home. He grows up reading the scriptures. But unlike almost all of his predecessors, he never formally joins a church. He doesn't feel able to make a profession of faith that's required to become a member in a church. However, he's very biblically literate. Um, He attends church while he's president. Both the Union and the Confederacy put forth distinct ideas of God's plan for America. This is a time when, again, visions of what a Christian nation looks like are in direct competition. You have northern ministers in during the Civil War, such as Henry Ward Beecher. He's one of the most famous preachers in the country, proclaiming that God is on the side of the Union for a righteous cause of maintaining a unified nation and also liberating African Americans from slavery. On the other hand, you have southern ministers arguing that southern states are like the Israelites that are being led out of slavery in Egypt, that they're being oppressed by a um, imperialistic north, and that God is liberating them and, and having them help to maintain the divine institution of slavery, which they see in many ways as a paternalistic institution that's helping to care for African Americans. But in this moment, when Lincoln could have pronounced that God favored the Union, he did not. Abraham Lincoln, I think most famously, argues that God is on neither side in the Civil War, right? That there, there's, that if anything, the Civil War is a judgment on the nation, on both sides. And so he refuses to take a vision of God being on one side or the other, but seeing all of the nations as underneath God's judgment. Curtis says Lincoln's complicated relationship to religion is indicative of the personal tragedies he suffered in life. His son died while he was in office, and that this really did provoke a sort of crisis of faith for Lincoln. He had a kind of humility about making specific sorts of claims about where God was acting in history or through him or through policy that was relatively rare in his time period. 
And I think Lincoln was curious and, and interested to see where God might be at work, but always hesitant to commit himself to a particular pronouncement about God was doing and had a lot of questions and uncertainties having experienced tremendous loss in his own life from his son and the illness of his wife. So the mysteries of God's providence were very real to him on a deeply personal level, but also on a national policy level as well. In the decades after the Civil War, the United States turned its attention beyond its borders. There, too, the faith of the presidents helped shape American history. Curtis is also the author of Holy Humanitarians, American Evangelicals and Global Aid. In her book, she describes the religious roots of U.S. imperialism in the late 19th century. Many of the protagonists of my book were arguing that the way the United States needed to be a Christian nation was to to be different from other empires and to create not a political form of imperialism or an economic form of imperialism by taking colonies the way that Great Britain had an empire, vast empire in India at the time and colonies in other in Africa. And the argument was that as a Christian nation, the newest Christian nation, the United States could chart a different path. And part of the argument was the way to do that was to be uh, the most humanitarian nation in the world, to provide aid to countries in need as opposed to taking territory. When the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898, William McKinley, a Methodist, was president. In contrast to many of his predecessors, he was known to reject a strong separation between church and state. He felt it was the duty of America to spread Christianity and Western values worldwide. So the Spanish-American War happens when Cuba is beginning to rebel against Spanish rule. This was cut off for American Protestants in the idea that Spain was a particular kind of colonial power. It was a Catholic colonial power that kept its people sort of enthralled in false religion and uh, a lack of education of the populace. So the idea was some Americans were advocating the best way to be a Christian nation is to help subjugated people throw off the yoke of tyranny. McKinley was very resistant to that at first and did not want to get involved in the Spanish-American War. Some of the figures I study also agreed it was better to just give humanitarian aid to Cuban civilians that were suffering under Spanish military dictatorship. But eventually, the United States is drawn into that war and then quickly wins the military victories against Spain. And then the question comes up what to do about Spain's former colonies, including the Philippines. So at this point, there's a lot of questions. So what does a Christian nation look like now? And one of the arguments that's put forward is to be a Christian empire is to take care of these former subjects of Spanish colonialism and introduce them to a more civilized, more enlightened form of Protestant, capitalist, democratic rule. This belief that Protestantism was an enlightened form of Christianity is connected to a long history of anti-Catholicism in the United States. This is reflected by the fact that, as we discussed earlier, there has only been one Catholic president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, who was elected in 1960. In the 1890s, there's a lot of fear 
um, and fear-mongering about the role of Catholics on the world stage. And the idea is that the only people that can't be tolerated in a religious republic are Catholics because they're loyal in that, in that context to a foreign prince. So there's anxiety that Catholics are loyal to the Pope. Therefore, they are participants in an, uh, more of an, a hierarchical authoritarian religious structure that doesn't teach people to think for themselves. So therefore, it's not democratic, and it's not rational and enlightened. Um, and at the time, there's a, a concern that that kind of lack of self-mastery and agency also leads people to not be as economically productive. And in order to be economically productive in a capitalist society, you have to exercise self-control and rationality. And so all of these things are melded in with the vision of white American Protestantism that is supposed to be the model for a globally productive world. Curtis says anti-Catholicism in the U.S. plays a significant role in McKinley's plan to westernize the Philippines. And so the United States will bring this into Spain's former colonies who are now economically backward, religiously under a form of tyranny and haven't developed the capacity for self-government under Catholic rule. So that's the idea that Christianization, civilization, and certain forms of capitalist commerce all go hand in hand. And it's the United States' responsibility to bring what are considered, from their point of view, these blessings to regions of the world. McKinley prays about this. He sends a commission to investigate in the Philippines who want to have independence and, in fact, in fact declared their own independence, but the United States isn't recognizing it. And McKinley claims to have had an answer to his prayer about what to do arguing that the best thing to do as a Christian nation, as a Christian president, is to provide resources to civilize and educate the Filipinos and prepare them for independence at a later time. So that's an example of the idea of an American president's faith directly shaping foreign policy. But Curtis says McKinley's approach was not entirely successful or without controversy. The outcome was many, many decades of terrible warfare in the Philippines, and the Philippines arguing that they had asserted their autonomy and declared the Philippine Republic that the United States failed to recognize. And so it's not resolved for a very long time. It's not that McKinley's vision or that vision also wasn't challenged. I mean, there are definitely both Christian anti-imperialist figures as well as the anti-imperialist league that involved people arguing that this was not the way the United States should be. There's a Catholic bishop who wrote a famous piece called Empire or Republic. Is the United States going to be an empire or is it going to be a republic? This question of how the United States should express its Christian character persists as America entered the 20th century. Curtis talks about another example of a president's personal faith impacting foreign policy, Woodrow Wilson's southern brand of Presbyterianism. There's a fantastic biography of Woodrow Wilson by a colleague named Kara Burnage, who talks about specifically about how Wilson's religious upbringing influenced his vision for the United Nations, his vision for the way the United States would again act on the world stage after World War I. And that comes out of his being influenced by his sense of 
his Southern Presbyterian upbringing. And she actually very interestingly also ties this to way that Wilson is criticized for his failure and actually his rollbacks of integration during his period and the way he treats African Americans. She looks at the way Wilson's upbringing within this church that prized education of elites and sort of gave elite Southern Presbyterians a, a real role in maintaining order in society. Woodrow Wilson takes this vision and transposes it onto the world and sees the United States as projecting these values that are, are going to shape world peace after the First World War that the United States had a role to play in creating a League of Nations that would carry forward the, a hard-won peace in World War I. That was informed by his understanding of the importance of self-determinations of peoples, and that comes out of his background and vision. Ultimately, the League of Nations, the United States fails to ratify its participation, so it was a failure of his policy in a sense. But Certainly, his the way that he frames the U.S. participation or hoped for participation league, as well as previously in World War One, has to do with his sense that it's the United States' role um, as a leader in the world to carry forward important values onto the world stage and to fight again against tyranny, against godlessness. Almost a hundred years later, a different branch of Christians enjoy political influence. Former President Trump was buoyed by conservative white evangelicals, though his own religiosity is often called into question. I mean, one of the things that has been publicized about his own personal faith in terms of lack of religious literacy of the Bible, he does come out of a particular tradition within Protestantism. And although he identifies as Presbyterian, the faith that he was shaped in was that his father's pastor was famous New York City pastor named Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale is famous for writing a book called The Power of Positive Thinking, which is a strain of religiosity that values sort of human will and human agency, human thinking to shape reality. And so the idea is if you think positively about something, good things will happen to you. If you declare something to be true, that will shape the reality for truth. So his own personal faith does actually have some specific religious and theological content. But today, the U.S. is a religiously diverse country of Christians and non-Christians, with Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, and many, many more, all contributing to American religious life. Add to that fact that a quarter of the country does not affiliate with any religious tradition. It begs the question, does having a Christian president matter anymore? Might this idea of America as a Christian nation no longer hold? I think, again, going back to the early founding, many state constitutions did have religious tests early on that you had to believe in the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments in Pennsylvania, for example. So Jews were excluded from holding political office. But my students often observe that while it's true that there's no religious test, the fact is that many presidents have had to, in some ways, affirm their Christianity, their Protestantism. Take former President Barack Obama a Christian who is targeted by a campaign to convince the public that he is a secret Muslim. Curtis offers another example from the 2012 election. This was when Mitt Romney, who is a Mormon candidate for president, gave a big speech talking about how his Mormon faith is part of Christianity and explaining it to an American public. 
So there still is a sense, at least from my students, that this is an informal test that presidents still need to pass. And so that tells us something, even though we have a separation of church and state legally, that there is still this lingering sense of the importance of Christianity at the highest levels. That was Heather Curtis, chair and associate professor of the Department of Religion at Tufts University and author of Holy Humanitarians, American Evangelicals and Global Aid. Coming up next, we'll take a deeper dive into the surprising faith of one of the earliest presidents of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. This is Inspired. Stay with us.